0: to you. Daniel chapter 3 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and without a Bible, just wave to the guys coming up the aisles right now and they'll put a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, this evening. And looking at specifically at the first half of the book of Daniel, the first six chapters, they, uh, each one of the chapters has a, uh, a very, very practical application to our lives uh, as Christians, to any child of God and in any age. We know that the book of Daniel is a historical book. Uh, we know that it, it is a prophetic book. It speaks of the past. It speaks of the future, but it speaks very much into our lives, uh, lessons that are important as we look at Daniel, we look at the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, the most hostile pagan environment that existed in the world at that time, to be uh, serving God in the, the very Uh, heart of this dark, dark kingdom uh, known as the Babylonian Empire, and yet they navigated it successfully, and they stood in that environment. In chapter 1, we saw that that can happen, but it will require a purpose of heart and a complete dedication to the Lord. Chapter 2, we were reminded of a truth that we can never be reminded of too much, and that is that God is in control. Uh, of human history, and that we can rest and relax in that. Now we come to uh, chapter uh, 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width was six cubits, and he set it on the plain of Dura in the province of uh, Babylon. And so uh, what he 's doing here, as we 'll see in a moment is he is, uh, he is uh, fashioned and erected this great image, and it is in complete defiance of the image and the vision that was given to uh, in his dreams that were the interpretations given to him uh, by uh, Daniel. He makes it of gold, of course it isn 't solid gold. Um, as in it was uh, in the ancient world you could never make an image like that there wasn't enough gold in existence in the babylonian empire to make an image of solid gold uh, of, of that kind it was probably formed in wood and then covered with gold which would have been an astronomical amount of gold as it was this was a common kind of building way of building these images in the ancient world you might even remember from uh, the law of moses that uh, the the uh, brazen altar it is uh, laid out, uh, or the, the bronze altar, even though it's called the bronze altar, it wasn't completely made of bronze. It was uh, wood that was then covered by bronze. And so this was a, a regular kind of construction means. The dimensions are an odd dimension. If you're in any kind of engineering or an architect uh, of any kind, you would look at like 90 feet high and only 9 feet wide. This is a very... Uh, like a very gaunt um, uh, kind of uh, thing that has been put up in in front of us. It is, so it, it, the actual size of that's described for us here is that is 90 feet high in our measurements and then nine feet wide. So comparable to a nine-story building, that's a pretty good uh, image, pretty good sized thing that he's fashioned there and uh, placed there It's, uh, of course, entirely uh, possible that those were the actual uh, dimensions, but uh, it's also possible that the image itself was placed on some kind of a pedestal. And that between the pedestal and the image, we had uh, that uh, that kind of height for uh, the image, and then it would make the body much more proportional as a uh, as a result. Um, uh, these kind of statues in the ancient world were pretty uh, common. Uh, the Colossus of the Greek island of Rhodes, uh, you might Google it sometime and just look at it. I mean, just a marvel. It rose. Uh, to 105 uh, feet in height, one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, uh, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, he had virtually unlimited wealth, he had unlimited power. Nobody could say no to him in any kind of project that he would uh, run to his engineering department, and so he's the only one that could pull it off. It is important to notice that this image was erected on the plain of Dura, and the fact that it was a plain was deliberate, uh, because uh, this lo- large flat area, this thing rising nine stories high uh, from the midst of the plain, meant that uh, it could be viewed by people from you know huge distances. Certainly, uh, the crowd that was going to be gathered, that he was going to command, that they they worship. What what Nebuchadnezzar appears to be, and almost certainly is, uh, communicating. In the creation of this this uh, image all of gold is as we remember the interpretation uh, of the dream in chapter 2 where there was this great image that he saw in his dream and the head was of gold and then the sho- the chest and arms were of silver the gold representing the Babylonian Empire uh, the silver representing the Medo-Persian Empire and then the waist of this great image in bronze representing uh, the Grecian Empire and then you have the legs that are made of iron representing the Roman Empire, and then the, the feet that were made of iron and clay representing a final world ruling empire that will exist in the last days. Daniel told him, he told him With, uh, without any uncertainty at all, he told him the dream is certain and its interpretation uh, is sure. It makes you wonder if God didn't know what Nebuchadnezzar, well, of course certainly he knew, but, uh, you know, it, it, it was in anticipation of of what uh, God knew that Nebuchadnezzar was not going to accept the interpretation of the dream uh, or that the Babylonian Empire would not rule indefinitely in, in, uh, in human history. And so the... Uh, in the making of this uh, this image entirely of gold from head to toe, he's resisting God's revelation to him. That one day the Babylonian empire would be uh, supplanted by the Medo-Persian, which would then be supplanted by uh, a- another empire and another empire, and then finally a final world ruling empire. So this is what uh, he's, he's uh, fighting uh, against here, and he's rebelling against this revelation of God that not only is his kingdom not going to be supplanted by the Medes and the Persians, but uh, that even God uh, is not going to bring his empire uh, to an end. Uh, He's going to, (laughs) the, the Babylonian empire, you would have thought that it would go on uh, for hundreds of years. I mean, there's the sheer concentration of power and the greatness of the empire, and, and yet it really lasted only a period of about uh, 70 years at, it, at, its, uh, at its height. Nebuchadnezzar then, he uh, what's the sense in creating something like this unless you throw a party around it? and uh, invite all of your friends. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, he sent word to gather together all the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come up to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The Babylonian Empire was made up, I think it was like something like 70 states. And so, uh, and there were officials that had been, uh, that were part of the, the governing uh, structure there in each of those provinces. And so all of these uh, people, anybody that's in uh, uh, anybody, has been invited now uh, to come and uh, celebrate this, this great event. And so you've got all the rich, the famous, the powerful, and uh, coming, invited to this dedication service. And, uh, and And then the obedience of all of them. Uh, keeping that invitation, nobody would turn it down. So there's something good on. Great game on the TV tonight. I can't come. Uh, you would come, and they did. And so the satraps, the uh, administrators, the governors, the uh, councilors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that ne- Nebuchadnezzar had. Uh, Uh, had had set up. And so here they are out on the plain. You can picture it in uh, your own mind. And then as they're all standing there, uh, a herald then, uh, they, they don't quite know what's going on entirely. So this herald is going to inform them. Uh, about what this is all about and how they're to participate in this great event of the dedication of of the image. And so uh, he, the herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O people's nations and languages, that at the time that you hear the sound of the horn, uh, flute, harp, lyre, uh, and the psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music. So uh, uh, bagpipes would have been uh, in there, for instance, and uh, uh, whatever uh, comes from your kindred and your tongue, and uh, but all kinds of instruments beyond the six that are mentioned here. You shall fall down at that time upon hearing the music and then worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar uh, has uh, set up. And so you've got these uh, wind instruments, the sa- uh, string instruments that uh, are are mentioned, and uh, to bow down now before this great image that Nebuchadnezzar has created was a- an expression of uh, absolute loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar and to the Babylonian uh, empire. It isn't unlikely that the image, you say, what was the image? Did it look like an Oscar or what, you know? Um, the image was probably an image of the Babylonian god Marduk. And Marduk was the chief of the Babylonian uh, gods. And uh, the Babylonians worshipped a lot of gods. Uh, Babylon was idolatry central in the ancient world. And that's why these people, they, they, uh, they may have worshipped uh, uh, supremely some other god other than Marduk or the gods of the Babylonians. But uh, for them, it was just a matter of putting gods in their order and uh, there was really no compromise in uh, worshiping somebody else 's God in addition to their God. They believed in lots of different gods and so uh, but uh, there are three in the audience that are going to have a t- uh, trouble with uh, with that and so uh, the, the the fact that this assembly is called here now and to fall down and worship this image, it probably makes the it indicates the fact that it was a religious statue and of, of any of the gods that would be given that kind of a platform, it would have been uh, Marduk. And of course this uh, constitutes uh, idolatry from a biblical uh, standpoint and uh, something that the children of Israel couldn't do and uh, nor can any uh, child of God in, in the new covenant. In Exodus chapter 20 we read, Uh, God spoke these words saying, and uh, here you have uh, the Ten Commandments. I won't read all of them to you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth be beneath uh, or what is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to, to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Well, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who we're going to get in, in, uh, introduced to here in a moment. Uh, listen, it, If you never ever went to synagogue, if you never ever got introduced as a Jew to the Jewish religion, you would at least know the Ten Commandments. And they knew a lot more than that uh, from probably from their their background in in Judah and in Jerusalem, and so they knew this was something they were not going to be able to do without violating one of god 's commands and to violate god 's commands uh, intentionally is, is to compromise and so uh, they, uh, this is the, the fix that they're in. And then, just to make sure that everybody's uh, got their head in the game, uh, nothing like uh, a great threat. So, in verse 6, "...and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning, fiery uh, furnace." Now, uh, execution uh, of, of prisoners In the ancient world, certainly during the Babylonian Empire, it wasn't uncommon uh, at all. And in fact, Jeremiah speaks of, Jeremiah 29, verse 22, speaks of two that were roasted by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, where uh, Jeremiah declares, and because of them a curse shall be taken up by all the captivity of Judah who are in Babylon, saying, the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, uh, who were false prophets uh, uh, during uh, uh, that that unfortunate time in their history, whom the king of Babylon uh, roasted in the fire. So, um, you know, add being tied to a spit and roasted over a fire as just one more way you don't want to die. And, uh, and uh, but this was, this, was, this was not just, he's not uh, just talking metaphorically or with hyperbole. This is something that he would actually do uh, two people. So clearly, Nebuchadnezzar is very serious about this. He's again using the carrot and the stick, and inviting everyone the great privilege of being in that event. But then this great warning, and so he would have he would have viewed uh, I- any uh, defiance at all as as a criminal uh, act. And so at that time here we have the obedience of of the crowd. So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and loud, and in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people's nations and languages, they fell down and they worshiped the gold image, which King Nebuchadnezzar uh, had uh, set uh, up. And so here you've got Nebuchadnezzar, everything. There's nothing about this. Nobody, he didn't wake up that morning and say, you know, why don't we get a band out there? Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, when you're going to do a dedication service like this, you have thought of every detail for weeks and months. And you've had plenty of time because it takes a long time uh, to fashion and, and put together an image uh, like that. And so he's got this entire scene that is set up. And you just think about it for a moment. You put yourself in the middle of it, how he has... Uh, purposely uh, developed an entire situation with the intention of putting the absolute maximum pressure upon anyone that is in that crowd to do exactly what he is demanding uh, of them. And so here you have uh, before standing before you this gigantic image in gold that would just take your breath away uh, and, and leave you in awe. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever maybe in a major city in the United States, but certainly true uh, of Europe. You might walk into a great cathedral, and you might be an atheist. Uh, but just the environment itself... Uh, it, it, if you, if as a Christian you ever go to, if you've been to Europe and maybe gone into some of these cathedrals in France or uh, in England or in Germany, and it's interesting to go in as a Christian and maybe just take a seat and watch, and you see the most boisterous people out in the street. I mean, they're just knuckleheads and uh goofing around and and maybe young guys or whatever they walk through those doors into that room and now everybody's whispering and on uh, on their best behavior and uh, there's there's just the power of uh the architecture itself that that makes people realize that uh, this is something that i ought to respect and and the the pressure of it certainly in the All of this, you have the the presence of the the most rich and famous and powerful uh, people in the world, and so uh, that's, you know, you've got hundreds and thousands of these people, and when you've got uh, that much power concentrated in one place, and they're all going to do the same thing, it makes it even harder to stand uh, against it. And I, I mention these things simply so we can put ourselves in the shoes of these three and what it required of them not to bow down uh, to, to the uh, image. I mean, if you, if you think that um, only teenagers are susceptible to peer pressure, you are not paying attention in life. Uh, we all are, and Nebuchadnezzar knew it, it was true. You've got the the careful uh, use of music, and music is powerful. You can talk to any uh, symphony director or anyone that has any orchestra in the world, and they will ta- tell you about the power of music, how they can emotionally impact every single person in that room uh, uh, solely on the basis of the music that is going to be played. It is a powerful, uh, powerful means of, uh, of of good, but also of manipulation. If you've ever watched uh, the old version of uh, the Ben-Hur and uh, just before the chariot scene and then during the chariot scene, just listen to the soundtrack it would be nothing without the soundtrack? I mean, the music really gets you pulled into the whole thing. And uh, and this careful use of the music is used here. And then, of course, as we saw here in uh, verse 6, if none of those things work, then uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a motivation that works for uh, everyone, and that is the threat of death uh, for uh, not worshiping uh, the image. There isn't much that he hasn't uh, thought of here in, in all of this, and so uh, as we saw, the music sounds in an instant. Everybody falls down as, a, as an expression of their worship uh, of the image, uh, and then implied in the passage, as we're going to see, uh, but uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Abednego, the the three uh, Jewish friends of of Daniel, they refuse to bow down uh, to to that. Uh, image, and uh, they refuse uh, to uh, in any way participate in what is happening. These are young men, and you put yourself in their shoes, and hundreds and surely thousands of the most powerful people in the world are all on their hands and knees before this image, and the three of them stand on that plane of Dura. How much pressure is on them? And what does it take to stand in an environment like that? It really is an amazing picture for those of you who are artists. I mean just this this sea of people and then this giant image and here's these three figures that are uh, remain uh, standing. One of those beautiful pictures of, of bravery and courage in the whole, uh, whole uh, Bible. And, uh, and we can see it in our minds. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is informed. Apparently he didn't see them. Uh, there's a vast, vast crowd, so he probably couldn't see everyone. But, you know, when you've got uh, little rats like the ones that uh, he had around him, that uh, he didn't need to see everything. And so, this Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and they accused the Jews. Now, remember, it talks about the Chaldeans here, that the Chaldeans were a a subset of Nebuchadnezzar's wise men. Uh, Chaldea was a, a province within the Babylonian Empire that was known for its wisdom. And so these were men who had been saved Uh, From being hacked in little pieces with their family and their house being made a dung heap because Daniel and these three, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, uh, had received the interpretation of the dream or they would have all died. Uh, this is a classic case of what have you done for me lately. They, they sh- ought to, uh, just to be able to live with themselves, ought to have been grateful the rest of their lives uh, to these three, let alone to be running to Nebuchadnezzar to uh, uh, you know, inform on them. And they spoke and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, uh, live forever. I don't care how egotistical you are. uh, I think that would get tiresome for me after a while, but this was how you had to uh, approach him. You, O king have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and uh, uh, psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship uh, shall be cast into the furnace of the burning, uh, into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O oh king, have not paid due regard to you. i are going to make it personal. And uh, they do not serve your gods or worship the gold image that you have set up. So the, the fact that they bring these three uh, Jewish young men up uh, And remind Nebuchadnezzar that he's the one that had promoted them, it lets us know that for sure there's a fair amount of uh, jealousy that is involved in their informing on these people. You remember that when Daniel gave the interpretation, uh, 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 gave both the dream and the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar made him uh, his chief representative in the capital of Babylon. And Daniel uh, informed him of the part that the other three had played in this, and they were given positions immediately under Daniel. So they had been given these very, very high positions as young men, Uh, over much older men who had a lot more seniority and time and title than than they did. And there was obvious a lot of uh, bitterness uh, over that. And they're looking for an opportunity to upend them so that they can have the potential to take uh, their their positions and so they they bring the accusation to him uh, in this way and in form and then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and fury this seems, this is his reaction uh, to any defiance uh, uh, that is I- expressed uh, toward uh, toward him and uh, so he explodes in rage and anger he gave the command for Shadrach Meshach and Abednego uh, to bring them to him, and so they were brought. These uh, they brought these men before uh, the king. And now Nebuchadnezzar spoke to them, and saying to them, "Is it true?" Now Nebuchadnezzar has just heard this second secondhand. Um, he is a man who values their talents. He certainly under he certainly knew them. Uh, they were uh, so high up in his cabinet and in his leadership in Babylon. And uh, he certainly uh, enjoyed the benefits of their expertise and of their talent. So he doesn't want to throw them into the fire unnecessarily. Good help is hard to find. And uh, so he's going to establish what are the facts here and and basically give them a second chance. And so he says, is it true Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready at the time Uh, You hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the uh, psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and you worship the image which I have made good. Uh, So I'm giving you a second chance, gentlemen, and it's a wise person who will take the second chance. But if you do not worship you will be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace and and uh, apparently all of this is going on, and there 's a burning fiery furnace over here in left field that he 's just got going uh, to is an additional kind of uh, of motivation and uh, a thought comes into my mind i 'm ignoring it uh, so and then he goes on and he says. That, these are problems I have. And, and so he then tells them, and who is the God will de- who will deliver you from my hands? Uh, don't ever say that about God, the God of the Bible, because you're going to get introduced to him. Sometimes in a very unpleasant way. He will be introduced to God uh, formally in the, in the next chapter, but uh, in, a, in, in some degree in, in this chapter as well. Uh, and, and in essence, he's kind of saying, uh, listen, all right, your God can uh, make known dreams. Your God can make known uh, the interpretation of dreams. But your God cannot deliver you from someone like me and all I've got to do is make the order and you're going to be thrown into uh, that, uh, that uh, smelting pot, into that furnace that is over there. And then we have uh, their uh, response to him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and they said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need uh, to answer you in this uh, matter. And the idea is we have no need to deliberate on this. Uh, Don't bother striking up uh, the band again. Uh, They're probably union. It's going to cost you a fortune. No need. Uh, Don't don't bother with that uh, anymore. Don't do it for our sakes. Uh, because nothing is going to, to uh, change here. In other words, they're, they're letting Nebuchadnezzar know that this, they, they, all of this is just already a completely settled issue in their lives. We will not bow down to that image even under uh, the threat of uh, death. And, they're, uh, and again, it is so important that our convictions about what we will live for and what we will die for, not as human beings, but as children of God. Uh, Those convictions uh, need to be in place in our lives before they ever get tested. If uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were standing there in this place and they thought wow we've never thought of this before Uh, we need to do kind of a huddle and figure out what we're going to do that is no time to be figuring out what are the boundaries in my life that I will not cross Uh, uh, in terms of what God has commanded in His Word because that moment in time is not a place, a good place for trying to figure that out. That needs to be worked out between us and God and our relationship with God long before any pressure is put upon us as Christians to compromise, whatever that, that compromise might be. I remember reading as a fairly new pastor... And I remember reading the story of uh, James Calvert. He was a missionary... Uh, to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands, and it speaks to all of this. And the captain of the ship that brought him uh, to the Fiji Islands, uh, as they were about to disembark to go onto the islands, uh, he, he tried to turn James Calvert and, and the, the Christians back from going there. And he said, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. And uh, uh, James Calvert replied, we died before we came here. And, and that, that is the same kind of spirit. You can't threaten us with death here uh, because we died uh, to the will of God. Uh, long before you ever uh, put the threat of our physical life uh, in, in, in jeopardy to test what our commitment is, is to God. I, I think it's easy for us to kind of tend to think of a martyr solely as someone who has died for uh, their Uh, faith. But uh, it is very important to realize that the biblical sense of the word, uh, a person can be a living martyr, because uh, to be a martyr, uh, that, that word as it's used in the scriptures, it simply means a witness. You might remember in Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamos and recorded in Revelation chapter 2, there was a man by the name of Antipas that was a part of that uh, church who was killed for his Christian faith, and Jesus referred to Antipas as my faithful a martyr. And he said, uh, I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny uh, my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan uh, dwells. And, and the point is, is that Antipas was a martyr long before he died, and it's very, very important for us to understand this as Christians and to apply it to our own Christian lives. Death does not make us a martyr, biblically speaking. Uh, Death simply reveals that we already are uh, a martyr, And, and it reveals us to be one, and thus what it speaks to us is that you can live our entire lives fully committed to obeying God's Word and God's will for our lives, and we may never face death uh, in, in this country, perhaps, as a result of it, and yet we can still live a martyr's life. You don't necessarily have to go on the other side of the world or some dangerous part of the world in order to to live for Christ. It is possible to live as a martyr in in Modesto, uh, California, and uh, Paul uh, uh, said precisely the same thing concerning himself, and 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 not just concerning himself, but concerning all living martyrs in in this sense, when he wrote in Galatians 2:20, he said. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Uh, he, He was basically saying, I am alive in a physical sense, But I am a martyr. I am fully dead in another sense. My life is completely given over to God, whether it means life or whether it means death. Uh, In Acts chapter uh, 20, as he spoke to the Ephesian elders there, he said, but none of these things, talking about the chains and tribulations that awaited him in Jerusalem, and he had been warned about as he's making his way now to Jerusalem, he said, none of these things move me nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And so the Christian life, important for us to understand, it is intended to be a martyr's life whether that life is uh, ultimately expressed in a long life of of being a martyr while living, or whether it ends up being uh, expressed in death. And the Christian life is the only life that's, that's worth living. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, there's the martyrdom, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what is a man profited if he gains the entire world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man did not come in the glory of his Father and of his angels, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his uh, works. And so they say, listen, there's no need to put us to a second test. Uh, we will do precisely uh, what we did the first time in verse 16. And, and so uh, the, uh, the further explanation that they give to Nebuchadnezzar, and if uh, that is the case, you're going to throw us into this fire, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not, ser- uh, we- uh, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image that you have set up. Wow. God bless him. Uh, Holy Spirit at work in, in in the in the Old Testament. Now this this is a a fascinating confession that they make here. They declare to Nebuchadnezzar uh, uh, that they declared to him God's ab- ability to deliver them and. Uh, and that not only does God have the ability to deliver them from his threat, but that uh, he will at least deliver them from Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And, and if not, even under the threat of death, we're not going to serve your gods. We're not going to worship this this golden uh, image. And, and here you see this uh, tremendous uh, spiritual maturity of of these three young men. Uh, And they knew God could deliver them. They knew that there's nothing that's impossible for God uh, to do. But they readily declared that they did not know in this instance whether God would deliver them from the fire or not. And there are a lot of things that occur in our lives where we know what God can do. That God can do anything and so he can do anything and everything in this situation but but within that trial, while we know that about him, we do not know what he will do. We know the Bible reveals him to be this powerful, but we can 't find a specific promise in the word of God that uh, that guarantees us that we will not go through this kind of, of tribulation. So we know that he can deliver us from the fiery trial, but we have no promise uh, from God in the Bible that he uh, always uh, will uh, do that. And so they, they, they lay uh, all of this, this out. The possibility that it might not be God's plan to deliver them from the fire. And uh, this is just a very thorough understanding of the word uh, of, of God. They didn't want Nebuchadnezzar thinking that uh, if they ended up in that fire, that their God was any less God uh, by virtue of the fact that they ended up in in that uh, that furnace and because he didn 't deliver them from that terrible uh, difficulty, now, there are many uh, faith teachers today uh, who would would say that uh, a a Christian to kind of Make this kind of a statement that they 're making here is kind of a, 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 a cop out and and uh, they 'd say that Christians possess, possess a, a lack of faith for uh, leaving God uh, any other option than the one that we want, uh, so we just claim that promise we just believe that promise, and somehow our faith in a promise God hasn't uh, given us in His Word, God is going to be uh, kept uh, to that. Uh, but, but then uh, uh, God doesn't look at that at all and, and say that a person that looks and says, God may do it, He's perfectly capable of doing it, but He may not do it. Uh, God doesn't view anyone as lacking faith Related to that kind of a a situation And an understanding of him In fact, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament In the book of Hebrews chapter 11 The great Christian hall of faith that is there These three Hebrew children are listed in the hall of faith With this understanding of God and in uh, verse 34, as he's listing, uh, who through faith uh, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, uh, stopped the mouths of lions, uh, quenched the violence of fire. Here, talking about these three, escaped by the edge, of, uh, escaped the edge of the sword. Uh, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, and turned to flight the armies of, of aliens. But, but to call the, uh, uh, this phrase that they use, but if not uh, concerning God, to call that a lack of faith anyway, it, it, it is to ignore the book of Acts. It is certainly to ignore the epistles of the New Testament, and, and it is to ignore the life of Jesus uh, himself. And the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was crucified and he went a little further, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, O oh Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And that's a mature understanding of what the Word promises us in the midst of tribulation in life. I have watched so many Christians suffer in, in, in 35 years of pastoring such Heartbreaking crises of faith in their life. And in such a um, a terrible turmoil in their relationship with, with God because they uh, claim from God what God has never promised us. They claim promises that do not exist in the Bible. There is no promise in the Bible that guarantees us as Christians that we will always be spared suffering and uh, trial. And they they demonstrate the maturity of confessing, God can, but he may not in his his sovereign will. But I think they did it in the same way that any of us should, in a kind of a mature understanding uh, of these things. That when we say, uh, uh, God can do this, but he may not do this, we say that with the confidence that That uh, since God could spare us the fiery trial, if he doesn't, it must mean that he is up to something even better related uh, to, uh, to our lives. Not something easier, but something better, something uh, necessary for us to one day hear from the lips of Jesus, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And there have been times in my life where I've gone through things that I haven't uh, understood at all. They, d- they didn't seem necessary to me. And, uh, you know, you lose your bearings. The trial is so difficult. It's so awful. All I want is to get out of it. And, and I think you understand those kind of trials, of course. And, um, and uh, and then finally it dawns after some amount of time as is necessary in the realization, well, okay, he's, he's uh, not delivering me from this fire. So apparently somehow this trial, this fire in my life is an important part of me one day hearing a well done from him. And uh, that perspective in a trial can take us a, a long way and fuse a lot of perspective and a lot of uh, of. Of encouragement in, in, uh, in a trial. I, I mentioned it every so often, this uh, saying uh, that I, I love so much, an old saying uh, uh, that God nothing does nor suffers to be done. What, but what thou wouldest thyself do, couldst thou see the end of all he does as well as he. And uh, my friend now in heaven, uh, Bill MacDonald, he translated it this way to make it simpler for all of us. God answers all my prayers the same way I would answer them if I had his wisdom, power, and love. And it's it's true, absolutely uh, true. I think that this also uh, speaks to us an important lesson about the fact that as we just simply walk with God and obey God, that our Christian faith will ultimately come out into the open in the various environments. We all, we all want people to see Christ in our life, God in our life. We want them to know that we are Christian in a way that looks like Christ. and. And so we want to reach them with the gospel. We want them to see the kingdom of God represented through our lives. These are all desires that we have. And, um, and here we see how that will become known through our lives as we just simply live our Christian life obedient to the word of God. We don't have to put pressure upon ourselves to do some kind of a goofy thing in order to let Everybody know that I am a Christian, and and some kind of carnal, fleshly kind of thing. You don't need to begin speaking in tongues during a staff meeting, uh, or in your homeroom class, and or, But the, we can put pressure on ourselves. We, I want everybody to know that I'm a Christian, and that I'm different, and I I want to, you know, to reach them with the the kingdom of uh, of God. And uh, sometimes we just can do goofy things that are just unnatural, that they make everybody uncomfortable, and they do more damage than, than good. Now, we should listen to the Holy Spirit, no matter what He tells us to do in any particular environment, that will always be, uh, be, be right. But when we simply obey God's Word, and we refuse to compromise His Word, that's going to out you and me in the course of our lives. Uh, it just is going to in the corruption uh, of uh, of the world that we live in. You don't have to sweat uh, you becoming known as a Christian or to make it happen artificially. It will simply happen. But the beautiful thing about having it happen on the basis of uh, standing upon a biblical principle or a biblical command is that then people find out we are Christians in a way that isn't frightening to them. And and so we might explain to a boss or we might explain to whoever it might be as the pressure is being brought to bear and say, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. The Bible tells me I cannot do that. My relationship with God is the most important thing to me in my life. And it is that relationship with God that makes me the valuable, hardworking employee that I am for you. And, and, and so the, what you value means this is true about my life. And that will make sense to people and we're letting people know that we're christians in a way that is safe for them they'll understand that and in a way that looks like christ uh, in a way that protects the reputation of god it protects protects the reputation of of christianity and uh, so we see this this beautiful natural thing they are just being a christian in that environment and everybody is going to know that they're a Christian before everyone in the Babylonian empire, before all of this is said and done. And so Nebuchadnezzar's response to this was, uh, cool, I was completely wrong about all of this, and I'm so sorry. No, then Nebuchadnezzar, he was full of fury. If you thought he was angry before, this is, uh, now he's redlining. And and you could picture it in your mind. He gets so angry, we're told, that uh, the expression on his face changes towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he spoke and he commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more uh, than it was usually uh, heated. And then he commanded certain uh, mighty men of valor uh, who were in his army uh, to now bind Shadrach, uh, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, notice that word bind, and then to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men uh, were bound, there's the word again, and uh, in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their outer garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot the flame of the fire killed those uh, who took up Shadrach Meshach and Abednego so you see them just racing toward uh, this fire like a, a steel mill the fire's just coming out and they know in order for us to launch these guys into that opening means we're going to die and, uh, and, uh, and yet uh, here uh, they did it, and they cast them then into the fire. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they fell down, bound, there's the word again, uh, into the midst of the burning, fiery uh, furnace. And then, uh, as all of this is going on, everybody's, of course, glued to the furnace. And uh, then King Nebuchadnezzar uh, was astonished. And he rose in haste and he spoke, uh, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he said, Look, I see four men, and then notice that they are loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth of the form is like the Son of God. And here he sees a Christophany uh, or a Theophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus uh, prior to his incarnation into human history in in his uh, in his birth. And you notice here we see what the Bible does promise us as Christians. And the, pro- the promise is not that we will be spared fiery trials, but that he will never leave us or forsake us in those fiery trials, that he will be with us in, in those trials. Sometimes you look at people... And they 're in just the, the the kind of trials and difficulties, and sometimes it 's like four trials have come uh, one on top of the other, and you just think, like, "How in the world are they surviving that and And how they are surviving that is that uh Jesus is with them in a in, in and whatever we need Him to be in His presence within our lives, in whatever circumstance we're in, He becomes that uh, to us. And there are things that we learn about God. There is an intimacy of relationship that is developed with God that I think is is only developed in, uh, in, in having a number of these kind of trials in the course of... Of our lives sometimes you talk to people when you're a young Christian or a new Christian or a younger person in general and I used to be one of those and um, you know you hear people talk about these horrible trials that they are in or they have been in and you're just thinking I never want to be in anything please God help that never to happen in my life and um, and then you hear them say afterwards and you know as hard as that was and as much as I would never want to do that again I, am, uh, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything because of what happened between me and God uh, in that environment. And it is, it is the truth. And uh, God meets with us in a special way. Uh, uh, there is a kind of a special revelation of Him that happens so often in the fire that makes uh, all of it uh, worth it. It is important to, uh, to notice here uh, as he, uh, the the fact that they are now found loose in uh, in the fire, and uh, and the the uh, uh, we'll will continue on here in, in uh, verse twenty six to get get into it. Then Nebuchadnezzar he went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace, uh, uh, evidently not too close, and, and he spoke. And he's still used to giving orders. And he said, "Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God." Ah, Mr. Big Shot Buckaroo, uh, you know, Mr. Smarty Pants. Now you're getting, you know, th- you remember what he th- what he said there at the end at the end of verse uh, 16 uh, or 15, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Uh, Big Mr. God who can give the dreams and the visions, but he can't deliver you from this. And, Uh, And here he gets a a second introduction to uh, the God of the Bible and the God of of these servants. He said, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they came out of the midst of the fire, and the satraps and the administrators, the governors, and the king's counselors, they gathered together. I mean, they're just touching them and giving them the the, the smell test. And, uh, and, they, and this is what they saw. Uh, they, and, and they saw these men on whose bodies uh, the fire had no power. Uh, and then moves from uh, the hair of their head was not singed. Uh, that's a distinctive smell, isn't it? When you're cooking oatmeal or something and you go, what is that? Oh, okay. I just burned all of the hair on, uh, on my upper body. Um, so even the hair wasn't uh, uh, singed at all. Their garments were not affected. And there wasn't even the smell of fire uh, on them uh, at, at, at all. And uh, one of the things that's interesting to, and, and uh, worth always noting in a study of this, that uh, nothing uh, was, was burnt related to their lives. The, the only thing that got burnt by the fire were the ropes that bound them uh, when they were thrown in. Those are the only things that got burned off in the fire. They were freed and walking uh, within the fire. And uh, we may hate these kind of trials. We may hate these kind of fiery uh, trials that God uh, allows within, within our lives. But always when he does, and it's the testimony of every single one of us in this room, we come out of those trials freer than we have ever been before. Uh, freer from addiction, freer from concern about what people uh, think of us, uh, uh, freer from the love of comfort than we ever have before uh, in our lives, uh, freer from our self-will and our pride and our our self-reliance, freer from our fear and and unbelief and, and so forth. And the great observation concerning fire, of course, is that uh, it it, it has the capacity to do great good or to do great damage uh, dependent entirely upon uh, the material that it comes into contact with. And so when it comes into contact with wood, hay and stubble, the things that are worthless in in our lives, it burns all of that uh, completely away. But when it comes in, uh, fire comes into contact with steel, it always purifies that and and makes it stronger. And these fires that God allows in our life, and, and we know it from our own experience as we see it here, it always, without exception, it always strengthens what is of value in our lives and it burns away what is of no value. And it's important to understand that fiery trials ultimately never, ever work against us. God works them to make us freer and cleaner and stronger. He never lets them do any ultimate harm uh, uh, to us at all. And so Nebuchadnezzar spoke. uh, He's in his full politician mode here in verse 28. And he said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and uh, God's going to tire of, of this thing that he does, uh, you know, praising God and then uh, blaspheming uh, God, uh, uh, you know, from one event to the other in his life. All that's going to happen in the, the next chapter. Uh, but, uh, but here he goes again, uh, praising the God uh, of these three who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And, and they have frustrated the king's word, speaking of himself, and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. And I'm going to read that verse to you just one more time. This is, this is the speech of Nebuchadnezzar. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Uh, and uh, the, uh, and they and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve or nor worship any god except their own god. All they did was just obey God in a situation that was hard for them uh, to obey. It was life threatening for them to obey, but. Verse 28 is the sermon that Nebuchadnezzar heard from their life. And not all sermons are verbal. Uh, People get what is going on uh, more than sometimes we give them uh, credit for. And therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. Here we go again. And their houses shall be made an ash heap, uh, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, uh, and Abednego uh, in the province of uh, Babylon. We have no word of what he did with the great image. It might have uh, ended up for sale on the equivalent of eBay in those days. (laughs) Somehow, kind of an embarrassment to him uh, at this point in in the progression of everything. Let me close with just a couple of brief reminders of what we learn here. Uh, We learn, very importantly, that God may not always spare us every fiery trial in life as a Christian. uh, But He never promised that. What He has promised is to be with us in the midst of those fiery uh, trials. And it is important that we never compromise God's commands in order to avoid uh, a trial. It all Compromise in any Christian that is spirit-filled and cares anything about our relationship with God and views their Christian witness as the most valuable thing that they possess. The, the one thing that we cannot live with in ourselves is, is to compromise the commandments of God and and mar our Christian witness as a result of it, even to escape uh, the greatest of, of trials. I, I, I know I'm two minutes over here, but I, I just want to drive home this point with one illustration. There's a man by the name of Thomas uh, Cranmer, and he lived in the 1400s and into the 1500s. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he was tried uh, for treason. He was imprisoned under the persecution of uh, Protestant Christians uh, by a a very, very fervent Roman Catholic queen by the name of Queen Mary uh, I. And, uh, and he publicly, ended up publicly recanting his support for uh, Protestantism uh, in writing under the weight of the persecution that she brought against him. And, and, and so he, he denied and recanted the Protestant gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, it is through faith alone, and yet despite his uh, uh, recanting of his faith, he was later sentenced to burn at the stake anyway, uh, by by Queen Mary. Uh, when he was taken to the scene of his execution, he asked his executioners to untie him, and they did. And then he did a curious thing. He walked straight up uh, toward the fire, and he thrust his right hand into the fire, the hand that he, uh, with which he had signed his uh, uh, recanting of the gospel, and he declared out loud, "'As my hand offended,' Uh, writing, contrary to my heart, my hands shall be the first to be punished. And just a powerful illustration of the fact that any of us as Christians will live to deeply regret any time that we compromise God's commandments in order to uh, get out of a fix. And certainly a life of compromise will never ever end in, in hearing that well done one day in our lives. Compromise takes me off of the path of being a good and faithful servant. So it puts in jeopardy uh, the one day hearing those words from uh, Jesus. This, this chapter 3, again, a familiar passage, but it reminds us what a a strong uh, thing Christianity is and a walk with God is. And it reminds us that it requires real courage and it requires real bravery to live this life. And it's a courage and a bravery that the Holy Spirit will give us in the face of any compromise that comes against us. And today we live in a culture of ultra, ultra to the max insanity uh, of of permissiveness and tolerance, and so we can find ourselves going along uh, to get along, and we must not do that. And and uh, but to make these stands and then watch what God does with these stands when we make them. In our lives. He will always be faithful to his promises. So if you sit here tonight, or if I stand here tonight, and my life is marked by almost universal compromise, I cave on God's word every time it costs me something to obey it. Or even if it's just in one or two areas of my life, to not leave a passage like this and to say, I, uh, I th- that I do not want to experience uh, the fullness of the glory of this example of what God does in that kind of a life for my own life. And, and to, to say tonight before we leave and we go get our children and go to our cars, say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit until I meet uh, every Temptation to compromise with the courage and with the bravery that I see in your word in these three. And when we ask God for that, He will be faithful to provide it to us. You watch and see as we would offer that prayer as needed to Him tonight. If Mike and the worship team would come forward, we'll uh, close tonight. Uh, with a song, is there coming forward? If you are here tonight, please stand. And um, you are not a Christian. Uh, God wants you to be a Christian. He wants you to put your faith in His Son to be saved tonight to know Him. We'll be up in front after the service and would love to pray with you to do that this evening. And uh, if you need prayer for anything in your life, we'd love to pray with you and uh, and for you as well. Mike, would you close us?